0: I'm really excited to um, be here this morning and to get to talk about what we get to talk about because it's an issue that um, I have really wrestled with the Lord over for the last um, year and a half especially and that He has really uh, challenged me on in really great ways. Um, So I'm really excited and then of course... um, As it often happens, I feel like when the Lord puts an opportunity in front of you, I feel like the enemy has just been kind of merciless on me for the last um, several weeks leading up to this. Just, uh, I had two kids sick all last week. I have the third who got sick on Monday. When the other two got better on Sunday, and so he's been sick all this week. And so um, the last two weeks, there has not been much sleep (laughs) at our house. Um, You know, but as I was just. Just praying in preparation for this, I was just thinking, Lord, thank you for sleepless nights. um, Lest I walk in here feeling strong in myself and rested and open my mouth as if I have anything to tell you guys that's going to change your world without the power of Christ. So um, I was just delighting um, this morning that he is strong when we're weak because that would be me this morning. Uh, so if at some point I do start rambling on and on, just know that it is because of a low grade sleep deprivation and um, I will probably eventually make it back to the topic. Um, but I, uh, I do, this is such a big, big issue that, um, that Paul and I, my husband and I have been um, wrestling over for a while and when Holly sent the, an email out to several of us months ago saying, hey, here are some topics that we would like um, covered this fall, would any of you want to speak on them? I emailed her back, I was like, that one, I will take that one um, because the Lord has been so... Um, uh, so strongly speaking to me in this area for the last couple of years. And um, it's probably interesting for some people um, that I would even be speaking on this. There are a handful of people I know who would probably think I'm not the appropriate person to speak on protecting your kids. Um, uh, but earlier this year, Paul and I moved from um, our house in North Pina, We moved down to West Dallas. And um, some people did not think that that was a wise decision with three young boys um, to move into an area that is in um, largely crisis in a lot of ways, crisis of the family, crisis of the schools, crisis economically and then all of the um, the things that are just present in a community when those things are um, happening. So um, even family at times has been very um, uh, concerned about our just dis- our decision to do that and our feeling like this is where the Lord is putting us and um, feeling like that's endangering our kids to go down and expose them to this world and um, and so uh, so the idea of protecting our kids um, I felt like as I as I thought about that it it presupposes that there are dangers we need to protect them from. And what are those dangers? And um, and I felt like you could probably come at that question a lot of different ways. And I don't know what you came this morning hoping um, to hear about. Um, I kind of broke it down into three different um Three different angles in my head, and we'll cover all of them. We're going to move through the first two pretty quickly because it's not really where I feel like the heart of of this topic is. Um, but but I don't want to. Um not say anything and have you leave completely discouraged and frustrated (laughs) Um, but the first thing I felt like when you look at these little children and you think I need to protect them the very first most basic level I thought about was just protecting them from themselves because Lord if you have little ones especially if you have boys we've got three boys you know that sometimes you're like Lord I don't know how to keep them alive until they're 18 like they will kill themselves if I am not like on it all the time you know and so um but as mothers we kind of we, we intuitively know how to protect them you know and the, the biggest rule that I kind of walk through my day with is that kids and you've maybe heard this before and there are outlines on your table they're super fancy and um, real fa fa and um, and I don't even have like a PowerPoint or anything they put this flip chart up here and I I really want to use it just to use it but I don't I didn't even ask for that. Um, But so there is um, an outline for you to take notes if you want. And some of these things are already on there. Some of these things you can just fill in if you want. But um, the rule that I usually kind of try to keep in my head with little ones in terms of just their own safety is that, and you probably have heard it before, kids will usually show you what they can do before they tell you what they can do. Um, you know, the, your child typically won't come in and say, Mom, I figured out how to open the gate to the pool. They'll just go open the gate to the pool. You know, they won't tell you, Mom, I figured out how to climb up the wall and hang from the ceiling over our tile floor. You'll just walk downstairs one day and your three-year-old will be doing it. Um, and so, you know, they do present... Um, they have such a curiosity about the world and they don't have the maturity to have the the sense to, oh, I better not do that yet. So as mothers, we do have this role of looking out for those things that might be, uh, and I say especially with boys, just because boys do tend to have that they love risk. They love jumping off something that seems too high for them to jump off of, you know, and, and there's a balance between letting little boys be little boys and um and saying, you know what, that's too high for you to jump off of. You know, so walking into a new playground, I usually I'll just look around and make sure, hey, is there anything that I know that I don't want them to do? You know, and we'll just just have the ground rules laid out at the beginning. Oh, hey, you guys play over here. This section is too big for you. I don't want you over here today, but this is what we can do. Just kind of envisioning the fact that they will do more than they are often capable of, and it's our job to kind of live a step ahead of them in that. But I didn't want to spend that much time this morning um, talking about that because I feel like that motherly intuition kind of already gets that. And so, the second thing that I thought about in terms of what are the dangers facing our kids are probably what you would um, probably what you would most often think of, just in terms of protecting them from others, protecting them from others who um, who would just out of the corruption of their own hearts harm them, um, protecting them from others who um, who maybe don't aren't out to get them, but it's just the reality that their friends at school are, have older brothers who have older friends, and there's just stuff out there that they're going to be exposed to. And um, and it's a broken world with um, with a dangerous element to it that our kids are vulnerable to. And, um, and so I did want to talk about that a little bit. I, a couple of things that I've just kind of come into... Um, I don't know. Come to um, come to see through different relationships around me. It just I I think sometimes we in the church can um, can get so used to trusting people and assuming the best about others um, that we sometimes are just quick to make assumptions about who we can entrust our kids to, and. Um, And I just want to urge you to be careful about entrusting your kid's safety based on your assumptions about somebody. Just because your child is in a Christian preschool does not mean that that friend... You know, who invites them over to their house, it doesn't mean that home is a safe place. It doesn't mean that those parents are living under the authority of Christ and ordering their home in a way that is safe for your child to go without your supervision. And I think sometimes we just kind of assume, oh, well, that little boy seems so sweet, and I've met his mom, and she seems really nice. And then we kind of sometimes feel free to send our kids over there just assuming, well, I'm sure that they have the same values we do and are and I, you know, wouldn't put my child in danger. And um and you just hear all the time about kids that um you know that that child that your kid is friends with is not the whole circle that your child is walking into. That child has siblings. That child has neighborhood friends. Those neighborhood kids have parents who may or may not behave in a certain way and expose them to certain things. And so there is just a... Not that you need to walk around being paranoid about every other person um, on the planet, but to just know if you are not going to be with your child, you should be very careful about entrusting them to someone who you don't see, you don't know implicitly that the fruit of their life is that they are living under the authority of Christ. And, um, you know, towards that end, just even with babysitters and nannies and things like that, um, you know, I, always, I think, you know, is it fair for me to ask my child to put themselves under the authority of someone who is not putting themselves under the authority of Christ? And so I'm not saying that there's never a time when, you know, I mean, certain family members, maybe they're not believers, but man, you know, your mom loves that child like, you know, like she was her own or something. I'm not not giving you a, a biblical, you cannot do this. I'm just saying as a general rule, you have to understand that if your child is not old enough and doesn't have the maturity enough, to take whatever situation might be presented to them and filter it through a biblical understanding of what, how do I deal with this, then you need to be really careful about who you are putting in supervision over them. They need help. And if you're not there, you, they need to know that the person who is there taking care of them um, is, is going to shepherd them the way that you would shepherd them. So I just say that... Um, because i've talked with with so many people that are like oh you know we met this you know neighbor down the street and they're so great and then it's like more comes out about the neighbors and it's like well he he drinks it's not you know but he doesn't drink so much around the kids and but you know they've had issues in their marriage but i don't know and and there's a whole sub context subtext to that child that friend's world that you are putting your child into and so i just say don't assume that everyone is going to um, guard your child and shepherd your child the way you would just because they're nice and just because you hit it off with her and and, and all of that. Um, so um, I did want to just, I think I put two resources on the, um, on the sheet before we move on from this topic. There's a DVD called The Safe Side that's just like preschool level, just kind of, um, is a fun way to talk to your kids about strangers. And, who you know, I we realized with our kids, like, you know, we're so big on being, uh, on, you know, talking to people when they talk to us. You know, if they ask you a question, you need to answer in your big boy voice. You know, when we're at church or when we're at places. And just being friendly that um, we had kind of like, we haven't prepared them at all for, you know, if a stranger comes up to you. You know, we, we tend to... um I don't know, just be real friendly and and didn't probably um, prepare them enough to, do you know what you would say if this happened? Do you, you know, what would you do if someone came up to you and said this? Um, You know, you need to equip your kids for those conversations. When you're at school and a friend comes up and says this, do you know what you would say? Um, You know, one of the... One of the things, you know, one of the rules with our little boys and their little boy parts was that, you know, private parts, the rule is we don't show anybody our private parts. We don't let anybody touch our private parts and vice versa. We don't look at anybody's private parts and we don't ever touch anybody's private parts. And if anybody ever asked you to show, you know, to show them your private parts, what would you do? What would you say? You know, and... And even our, our pediatrician is great about when they go to their exams. He'll say, okay, now I've got to examine this, make sure everything's developing good. And this is only okay because your mommy is here, because your daddy is here. Um, so just envisioning kind of like the, the, first, um, the first point of just thinking one step ahead of, of what your child is going to face and equipping them, teaching them. And that's something that would just be great for you and your spouse to sit down and say, hey, are we you know, have we been teaching our kids, do you know what, what you would do if you ever got separated from mommy and daddy? Do they know your cell phone number? Could they, you know, could they call you? Do you know what you would ever do if someone said, hey, come to my car? I, you know, I've got something for you. Or if they came to you and said, hey, your mommy is over here and she needs you. You know, have you talked with your husband about how do we, what are we going to tell our kids? How do we equip them for when those situations come? So, um, So the DVD is something that you could just you could take a look at. Maybe you like it. Maybe it gives you ideas of how you want to address I'm not not the gospel on Stranger Danger, but it's, it is a resource for you. The second resource I put down, a girl emailed me. She was like, I can't be there Thursday morning and I really wanted to, but there's this book. Do you have it? Um, it's called Protecting the Gift, Keeping Children and Teenagers Safe and Parents Sane um, by Gavin DeBecker. Um, he's not a believer. It's not a Christian book, but he has been in the business of... In, uh, Kind of danger prevention for years and years and years, and it came out of his own very dysfunctional um, home life as a kid. Um, but you know, it it goes through a lot of those typical um, issues, just of um, you know, strangers at school, um, friends as enemies, babysitters and nannies, um, just kind of all of those. Just the the danger, the violent danger in the world. How do you anticipate it? How do you prepare for it? How do you? So, it, if you're looking for um, something to kind of give you ideas in terms of how to think through some of those real practical things, that might be a book you might want to check out. So, um, those were are real basic, easy to see dangers that I feel like as moms we know it's out there scares us a little bit when we think of our children in a world where there is. So much corruption and um, just godlessness everywhere that you look. But um, as I thought about the title, The Truth About Protecting Your Kids, that made me think, another way to say that would be, what would Jesus say if he came up here and they said, teach this group of women the truth about protecting our kids? What would he tell us? And that's kind of how I, how I approached this um, was like, Lord, what is tell me the truth about what I need to protect my kids from and um And I will tell you i have um have wrestled with, um, with a lot of Jesus' words in the gospels more the last couple of years than I ever have and um, and so I'm going to spend a lot of time this morning um, in a lot of scripture, just um that I think speaks to this issue. Jesus gave a lot of warning passages. They're maybe not about the things that we are typically worried about, um, which I think says something. They weren't a lot of the things I was worried about. when I, a couple of years ago, when I started kind of wrestling with the Lord over this, these were not the things that I was really worried about. I was worried about the culture that my kids are going to grow up in and all of the things that have this very recognizable face of evil on. And, um, and so uh, hopefully that you guys will be encouraged this morning as we look at Christ and his words and his warnings and um, what he calls us to and what we can do for our kids, because I think it's a really, really exciting time in the church right now, and I think there is um, such a great opportunity we have as moms in this season of our life right now. So um, I want to start... Um, in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to start by just saying that I think the most dangerous face of the devil is a lot prettier than we think. Um, I think when we think of... The devil out there in the world, we think of Hollywood and the corrupt messages it's putting out. We think of internet porn and the way that it's invading our homes. We think of even sometimes public schools for some of us and just the godlessness and the secular curriculum and what it's teaching our kids in terms of undermining creation and um, abstinence and all the moral values that we uphold. And I'm not saying the devil is not there because he most certainly is working in all of those ways. But um, I want to read to you from Mark 8... Starting in verse 31, Jesus has been with his disciples and he's been, um, been teaching in the villages. And it says, he began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And most of us know what he said. He said, get behind me, Satan. And then he explains why, why Peter is this adversary to him right now, this enemy. He says, you don't have on your mind the things of God, but the things of men. And he doesn't say, you don't have on your mind the things of God, but you have on your mind these evil, violent, immoral things. He just says, it's just the things of men. And, um, and I think, wow, that is a really strong statement. Um, you know, Peter is not telling Christ, you know, I think we would probably be in the same boat as Peter. You know, you hear your friends saying it's going to be pain, it's going to be rejection, it's going to be suffering, it's going to be death. And he just takes them aside and says, Lord, no. I mean, and he knows who he is just the verses before. Jesus is walking around with his disciples saying, hey, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're a prophet. And he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter nails it. He just says, you are the Christ. You are God's sent one to us to redeem our people. He knows who Jesus is. He believes. The belief is there. Knows it. He just hears his friend talking about death and suffering and all these things that doesn't seem to Peter like God's plan. No, you're... you know, He wants hope. He wants life. He wants victory for Christ. And Christ doesn't say, hey, I know that you love me. I know that this might not make sense to you. He says, you are an enemy to me when you think like this. Get behind me because you are thinking like a man. You're not thinking the things of God. And, um, and I think that if we looked at a lot of our lives... I wonder how much of it are we thinking truly about the things of God, and how much are we just kind of thinking about the things of men, not evil things, not perverse things, just the things of men. Um, Paul says something similar. it's a different context, but he says something similar in Philippians three um, you know this is great passage where he says, um, you know' Everything that he had before Christ is lost to him now. Everything that he lived for, everything that he thought was gain, he considers it garbage compared to knowing Christ. And that's all I do is I press on to know him more and to take hold of the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And it's this great passage about Jesus is everything. The world is nothing. And and he says in verse 15 that if you're mature in Christ, you should have this view of things. Um... And if you don't, God will make it clear to you. But join with others in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Now listen to this. In verse 18 he says, For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so I think, okay, what do I think an enemy of the cross of Christ looks like? I think we have the picture that we hold up in our mind of, you know, the devout atheist who just mocks religion and it's a crutch and all that. I just watched a clip from a guy who's a scientist and um, just came out with a new book on why science is capable of producing morals, why we don't need religion for it. And he just had some really strong words to say on the God of Abraham and about how we could have all improved on You know, the Ten Commandments in about two minutes with um, half a brain. You know, just very, very um, mocking of this idea that there's this God up there that gave us this great law, you know, so lacking in his mind. And um, I look at that and I think that to me looks like an enemy of the cross of Christ. You know, you look at some of um, what goes on in Washington or in Hollywood or in any place in Europe. You know, and you're like that or, you know, the Middle East. You know, you're like that is, yeah, that's like you're just it's an enemy of the cross of Christ. It has nothing to do with that. But here's how Paul defines an enemy of the cross of Christ in verse 19. He says their destiny is destruction. Yes, we would we would assume that their God is their stomach. It's just their own appetites. Their glory is in their shame, and their mind is on earthly things. He doesn't say their mind is on evil things, evil, immoral, wicked things. He just says their mind is on earthly things. They live as an enemy of the cross of Christ. And um, I struggled with that. I still struggle with that. How much am I living for Christ, and how much of my life is spent just kind of concerned about earthly things? And back in Mark 8, after Jesus rebukes Peter and says, You don't have on your mind the things of God, but the things of man. He tells his disciples, he calls them to them and calls the crowd to him. And he says, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to have on your mind the things of God. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. One of the other gospels says he must take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Um, so, my, uh, my premise this morning, what I, what I believe to be true, is that the most dangerous place that we can raise our child is in a home that claims to live for Christ, but really we just live for ourselves. Um, John Piper has a great quote in one of his books that was really good on the hunger of God. He says, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven but endless nibbling at the table of the world. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. I love that. The most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Um. You know, people have asked me sometimes, like, are you worried about what you're exposing your kids down there to, what they're seeing, what they're hearing? And, um, you know, and and granted, you know, we don't go walking into crack houses, you know, to show our boys, hey, look, let's minister to the, you know. Like, there is a certain level of what we go out seeking in (laughs) in terms of ministering, you know, but we are around rough kids. We're around rough kids and they say things sometimes and they behave in ways that we don't want our boys to behave that way for sure. But it's it's such a clear conversation with them to say when they say why does he act like that? It's It's easy to say, you know what, he does not have a daddy at home loving him and teaching him. His daddy's in jail. He does not have a mommy who is shepherding him and loving him the way that Jesus says you should be loved. He doesn't have people explaining to him how much Jesus loves him and how Jesus calls us to act. They've kind of said we're going to live our own way. We don't really care what the Bible says. We care more about what we want. And this is the fruit of that. It's broken, isn't it? It's hard to be around him, isn't it? It's hard to love him. That's not good. There's a really clear correlation. So in, in some ways, I'm like, no. I kind of like that my boys get to see the brokenness and the futility of life apart from Christ. And not certainly that everyone down there is living apart from Christ. There are precious people who care um, about the community and reaching the community for Christ like other communities, it's just a little bit more in your face down there. I worry more about growing up in in this um, culture where they kind of have everything they need and kind of everything they want, and everything's kind of convenient and easy, and it looks good, and you could go through life. Feeling like as long as you kind of keep to a certain level of morality and kind of keep a certain amount of like church-related things in your world, that it's good and you can still kind of just live for yourself. That to me is is scarier. It's harder to see. No, this is not living for Christ because life looks good. It's 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 completely possible for life to look really good and for it to be totally off track from what Christ says. Matters. What he says is the only thing that matters. So, you know, I went to a a Christian school all growing up from grades 1 through 12, and um, with some good people and families that wanted their kids brought up in this, you know. In Christian values and principles, and we were taught the Bible. We memorized memorized books of the Bible when I was in school, and um, I can't tell you how many kids went off the deep end when they got out. You know, and you hear that it's you know kids grow up in Christian homes and they kind of go off and get lost for a little while and kind of have their wild years or whatever because they're so uninspired by what they've seen Christianity to be. Um, and it's been largely this whole thing of you can't do this. We don't watch these kinds of movies. We don't go to these kinds of parties. We don't drink. We don't use this kind of language. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't in the name of Jesus. And then, um, and then we kind of just do what we want after that. you know. We just kind of try to enjoy ourselves in the most PG way we can because that's appropriate. And um, And I just, I don't think... Kids are inspired by that, but they think that's the church. They think that's what Christ is, so they go off looking for something else to be fulfilling. Um, so, a couple of the dangers that I want to, um, that I think are probably the most, um, the most deceptive, and the, the biggest issues for us today, and where we live um, at this time. I think the first is money and possessions. Um, I think our children are in danger of growing up with everything they need and virtually everything they want. And I don't think we even think it's a danger sometimes. I think we think that we are blessing them with those things. And um, the reality is that the Bible, for the vast majority of its, of its um, speaking on this topic, does not address it like that. And um, we'll read Mark 10, which is a passage I'm sure you guys are really familiar with. But we'll read it again, starting in verse 17. It says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus, I love this line. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And I hate this line. It says, At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad, because he had great wealth. And what drives me crazy a little bit, when you hear this passage taught, most of the time, is the first thing someone will say is, Now Jesus is not saying... You have to go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. What Jesus is not saying, as if to say, this is not that big of a deal. Don't worry, you don't have to do this much. Let's just get that on the table. It's not that radical. Um, But Jesus doesn't qualify his statement like that. What Jesus says when he turns around to his disciples is how hard it is for the rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. It is stinking hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. So whether or not you want to say that Jesus expects all of us to sell everything we have and give to the poor, which, which I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, Jesus' summation of that experience was, it is hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. And um, I, just, I just, in my flesh, I don't see having a good salary and making a good income and having the things that make us comfortable, I don't see that as dangerous i don't, and um, I think we should be concerned about that passage. there's only a couple of reasons I think that we shouldn't be concerned about the passage we shouldn 't be concerned about it if Jesus was exaggerating and it 's really not that hard for the for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, maybe he was just um, you know just giving us shock value, and it 's really no harder for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven than anybody else. Um, I don't think that's true and I think the Bible has a lot of passages that warn about the deceptiveness of riches and that your life doesn't consist in your abundance of your possessions, and you shouldn't be storing up treasures on earth, you should be storing up treasures in heaven, and that those who love riches and want to be rich will fall into temptations and pierce themselves with many griefs. And so I, I put some of those passages down there. Um, so that's one. So if Jesus is exaggerating, and it's not that big of a deal, and it doesn't really make a difference how much you have, um, then we don't need to be concerned. But I, I don't think that's true. Um, or, you know, we don't need to be concerned if, um, if we just don't fall in that group, if we aren't rich. And most of us probably don't think of ourselves as rich. I don't think of myself as rich. But I have to I read these statistics and you probably all read them because it's kind of socially in right now to be aware of the third world. Do you know what I mean? That's very in you know, it kind of came in with Bono like several years ago and then like the whole hole in our gospel and Francis Chan and David Platt and all these great, you know, speakers have really kind of risen up in the church and said, Hey, look around you But you 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 read these statistics, like if you make $50,000 a year, you are wealthier than 99% of the world. The 99% of the world at $50,000 a year, Um, that 4 billion people in the world live on less than, than $2 a day or less that we will spend more money this year on things like soccer and gymnastics and piano than some people will spend this whole year to feed and clothe and care for their kids. And I I hear that, and I know that, but it almost seems so, like, unbelievable and unfathomable that I kind of just, like, have this auto switch that kind of turns off, and I kind of just go back and do my day, because I'm like, that can't be true. And if that's true, then, like then I don't know what that would mean for me of what I need to, what I should do. And so it's almost just kind of easier to kind of turn around and go, man, I will say a prayer for them. And then, and maybe, you know, maybe like not eat out the next time that I want to instead of cooking. But like, but we need to see ourselves as wealthy and that a, That we have a gift that has been given to us that is not for us. You know, Francis Chan in in Crazy Love, I I love the way he puts it. He talks about when Jesus fed the 5,000, when he multiplied the food. Like, how absurd would it have been for the disciples to hold on to it and take it home and be like, score! We've got, like, all this stuff. We could live for a long time on this. Like, But it wasn't for you to keep. It was for you to distribute to the masses. Like what you have is not for your just own enjoyment, but it's for you to show the world God's provision through his sacrifice and through your sacrifice. And so um, there's just nothing in our culture that tells us that. And I think the danger is our kids can grow up thinking that... Life is just kind of about our stuff and what we do with our stuff. As long as we're going to church and learning Bible verses and not doing the big sins, we can still just kind of pursue the same things the world pursues, and we don't have any higher calling as to what we do with them. We do. We have a big calling as to what we do with our stuff. And, um, you know, I used to feel like it's, it's so funny. Um, it's so funny how your perspective changes sometimes because I remember when Paul and I first started um, giving um, like 10%, you know, we're going to, okay, we're going to bite the bullet and we believe like that's the baseline for believers that we should, be, you know, at least be giving that. So like, okay, let's, you know, and I was pretty doggone proud of ourselves, you know, because like those seem like big checks, you know, compared to what the checks had been, they were big checks. Um, you know, and so I was like, oh, okay. Like, I feel good about that. And and now I'm like, wow, it, you know, if you look at the standard of giving us Christ and what he gave for us, does it really... Can I really stand here and go? I keep ninety percent of my stuff for myself, you know, in the name of Jesus. Um, you know, like there's this whole other way of thinking about it that I was like, "Crap," you know, like <laughs> I don't, I don't want my boys to think it's a checklist of okay, we gave, boom, you know, like that's not the heart of Christ. I don't think that's what He's calling us to, and so I think there is, um, I think that is a big. Danger that faces um, us today. Um, there was a study that came out that you know it, it went and asked people of a certain income level, very low income level, like ten thousand dollars a year or something. You know, do you feel rich? And they were like, no, of course not. And so they asked them, what what would it take? What, how much money would it take for you to feel rich? And the average answer was like eighteen thousand dollars. So they went and they asked people who made $18,000, do you feel rich? No, nobody felt rich at $18,000. You know, what would it take for you to feel rich? And the average answer was like $31,000. So they went, and and of course it went on and on. Nobody feels rich because you're usually comparing yourself to the person who lives in this neighborhood or drives this kind of car or goes on these kinds of vacations, and we don't do that. But, um, but the fact is that we are, everyone in this room, um. Is wealthy and it, I think our kids you know um, they see they see the world going after these things they shouldn 't see us going after these things we should be the ones saying you know what these things don 't matter we could let them go in a heartbeat and and we should we should be looking for way not just allowing margin in our lives for God to maybe do something. we should be looking for ways to lose our lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel in terms of our things um, the second uh, The second thing that I think is um, a danger for us, something that competes with denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following ourselves, however you want to say it, it is just our own comfort, our own enjoyment. I would even put in this category family. Um, I don't know if that's a controversial statement or not, but our mission is not to be a godly wife. Our mission is not to be a loving mom. Our mission is to walk with Christ. In the context of our marriage, in the context of motherhood, absolutely, but family is a horrible substitute for God. And if we aren't careful, we can live for our families and live for our own Comfort and our own enjoyment and our own agendas, and we can spend the vast majority of our time and energy on things that have nothing to do with the gospel so much as what we like and what we want. You know, not evil things, just earthly things. And um, the problem is that we can get so busy with... Um, with good things with t-ball with piano with soccer with gymnastics with all of these things with you know redoing the playroom and getting invested in getting a bigger car and taking the next vacation because we're so worn out from all these other things and um, and we can just fill up our lives with them and I'm not saying that you shouldn't do any of those things I'm not saying that that they're bad things. I'm just saying that, you know, I think there was this, you know, as you look back at kind of the history of family, and especially the history of family and this church, we kind of went through this whole, there's, you know, there's been the, kind of the battle of can women work outside the home, and there's kind of been this resurgence of moms at home seeing the value of being at home with their kids, which is awesome, which I'm like all on board for. But, um being at home with the kids is not only you know, I'll hear this a lot. I'll have had several people be like, I love what you're doing. I think it's great. I just have really realized this is my season to focus on my kids. Which there's a deep truth in that. We should be this is a unique season of opportunity that we have in the lives of our kids. The danger there is that if our whole focus is our kids, if our kids are the center of our attention and the center of our energy and the center of our resources all the time, then we shouldn't wonder when they get older and they think they're the center of the world why that is. The kids are not the center of our world. Christ is who we're following. and. Um, And I think we have this great opportunity to bring them along with us and show them this is what it looks like to live for Christ and not live for ourselves. And I'm, like I said, I'm not, please don't hear me saying, you should never spend time with your child playing soccer. (laughs) You can never sit on the ground and read a book with your kid. You should, you should be doing these things. I'm just saying, um, we can sometimes just think this season is. Is this big, and I think we're just missing a great window of opportunity to show our kids no, life is not about just this. Life is about following Christ, life is about denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following Him. And so I think the next, um, the next question is just kind of like, well, what does that even look like? What is that? Because we say follow Christ. Paul and I were just talking about this the other day. You know, we say we follow Christ and we kind of have this very vague, very metaphorical, abstract sentiment over what that is or what that even means. And, uh, but what does that look like? What What is the just very practical... Christ did things. He had an agenda. He had a priority list. He had a mission. What does it look like to follow Christ versus just asking him to follow us? You know, we can get into that trap of praying that way a lot. Just kind of asking Christ to follow us around everywhere and open this door over here and grant us this opportunity here and, you know, let us have favor over here and just kind of this... It's it's us. It's what we want. It's our own agenda. And we want Christ to kind of come and bless it. Um, but what, what does it look like to follow Christ? And, um, you know, First John, John 2 talks about this. Um, starting in verse 3, it says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth isn't in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So how did Jesus walk? Um, in, in Luke 4, when Jesus was beginning um, his ministry, he had just come um, out of the desert from the temptation um, you know, in the wilderness. And, um, and he comes, and um, he's kind of beginning his whole public ministry. And he's in the synagogue, and um, it says, uh, they brought him the scrolls. They brought him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he found the place where it is written, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled it up, sat down, and said, there you go, and that's who I am, and it's all fulfilled right now. That's why I'm here. Rich Stearns, who's the president of World Vision, um, you know, he calls this Jesus' mission statement. He was basically standing up at the beginning of everything and saying, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm fulfilling. Um, there it is. And... Um, and if you look at it, Jesus tells you this is what I'm about. I'm about a proclamation of the gospel. I'm here to preach the good news. And he says there's a priority too. It's first to the poor. Um, even when, when John is about to be beheaded and he sends his followers to Jesus to say, Hey, are you the guy that... We've been waiting for. Or should we be looking for somebody else? J- Jesus says, "Well, go tell them what you see." The the blind receive their sight. The lame are walking. The good news is preached to the poor. That's how you know who I that I'm the real deal. Um, so He's here to proclaim the good news. Um, he, it also talks about compassion for the sick and the sorrowful, and it talks about this awesome commitment to justice. That um, He's here to. Um, To proclaim the gospel in word and in action. And that was it. Everything is about that. Everything is about rescue. It is about rescuing people out of the domain of darkness and into the glorious light that God has brought us to in Christ. He says, this is what I'm about. And his whole life is about that. So, I think we just need to ask ourselves how much of our life is spent on his priority list and how much of our life is spent on our priority list because we can say we're following Christ but if 90% of our time and 90% of our energy and 90% of our resources and 90% of everything we have is really kind of for us then there's a disconnect and I think it's a dangerous place to raise our kids um you know, there's a difference between living to proclaim the good news and looking for a natural, unawkward way to bring up spiritual truths with someone in a way that won't make them feel too awkward. And, you know, we can get so, so off track in the way that we think about it. I mean, and I, I will tell you, I, like, I've struggled with that. With with just this, okay. If I say that I am following Christ, and the number of times this year that I shared the gospel with someone is in the single digits, how how much of that is really? How much time do I spend really following Christ? Um, you know. And if you're like, well, I just don't know that many non-believers where I live. I have to live somewhere else. Do something else. Something needs to change because that should be, the, the priority should be if nothing else happens, we should be doing this. Um, you know, Compassion for the sick and the sorrowful and justice for the oppressed and all these great things. The world needs to see that the followers of Christ care about those things. Our kids need to see that we care about those things because that's what Jesus cared about. And I think when we kind of reduce Jesus' interest in us down to the most very... Very superficial of things. And I'm not saying Jesus doesn't care about little things. But um, when we reduce it all down to just, we got this great parking space. I don't think that speaks of the glory of Christ. I don't. I'm not saying that, like I said, I'm not saying he doesn't care about even the little things. But we know this even as parents. Parents don't we, where, you know, if you have two or more children, you have experienced this at some point, point. one of your children hurts themselves, one of your children slams their finger in a door, or um, falls off of something, or does something, and they say, um, you know, they come to you and they're crying, and you are meeting their need, you're holding them, you're checking on them, they're seeing they're okay, and one of your other kids comes to you and says, I want to watch something. Mommy, I want to watch something. Will you go turn the TV on? I want to watch something. Or I want some grapes. Would you please give me some grapes? Some... And you stop and you say, you know what? Right now we're checking on this brother or this sister. This is the priority. They're hurt. This takes precedence over your desire for more grapes. Um, we get that there there is there should be a priority. and um, And I think we sometimes just insulate ourselves and not that it's always a deliberate choice but i think in fact i think it is absolutely what happens if we don't intentionally undo it is that we kind of surround ourselves with the people that are like us and um and we just don't we just don't even see that much need and that much pain Um, that should be taking priority in our worlds. Because those are God's kids. He sees his kids over here who have, and he sees his kids over here who are hurting and broken. And he says, hey, right now, we're going to go take care of this person. This person's hurting. And, um, you know, there's a survey that came out not too long ago that said... uh, found that four out of five kids in West Alps have been physically or sexually abused in their home. And, um, and you know, we're, we're around a lot, a lot of those kids, and I could see it. And, um, and I just think, okay, so I could, I could spend my day looking for new curtains for the upstairs playroom because we never put any in, and looking through magazines to see what we want to do with the backyard because it's not going to win any awards for, for our landscaping genius. Um, you know. And I could spend my time doing those things. They wouldn't be bad things. But what, would God, what does God think about that when he says, but right across that gate, there are thousands of kids who are in deep pain. What's the priority? Because I, I know what God's priority is. I know what his priority is. So how am I ordering my life around that? And and do my kids see that this is what following Christ is? We might like to do these other things, and sometimes we may have the time and and the ability to do those, but we're not going to live for those things because that's not what God's heart is living for. He's not just living for us to have all of our stuff and do all of the things that we like. Um... You know Hebrews 13:3 says to remember those in prison as if we were their fellow prisoners, and to remember those who are being mistreated as if we ourselves were suffering. Um, that's just a big statement. I think that's what Christ wants from us, but I don't. I don't know if um, the voices in this world are so loudly speaking in the other direction. That I that it's hard to remember, I think, um, and I want to draw a distinction too between um, between serving someone doing serving someone by doing something nice for them and serving someone by meeting a need. There are, there's a difference, and I, I, both are good and both are important. And I think we do um, I think we do the one easily with our kids i think it's easy to show our kids we should think of our you know when their friend comes over we want to serve our friend we want to let them go first or we went we're teaching them manners we're teaching them to put others before themselves or let's you know write a card for um you know so and so at daddy's work and leave it on her desk and you know like those are good things that we should be teaching our kids and we get those things kind of naturally but there is a difference between, um, between just doing something nice for somebody and meeting a need. Um, and I think that it's easy sometimes to think that, that caring for the poor or feeding the hungry or um, ministering to those in need is kind of for people who have that spiritual gift you know, um, for people who have a heart for the homeless, or who have a heart for inner city kids, or who have a heart for... And, um, and the biblical expectation is that that's just for the people who know God. You know, in Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah 22, 16... Um, The Lord is um, talking to this wicked king who had a righteous father. And he's talking to um, this king and he's saying, Does it make you a king just to have more and more cedar? Just to have more and more things. Do you think that's what makes you a great king? Uh, He says, Your father had food and drink. Your father did what was right and just. And so all went well with him. Verse 16 says, He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well. Isn't that what it means to know me? The Lord says, "Just that's what it means to to know me." First John takes it even a little bit further. Um, in First John three, um, starting in verse sixteen, he says. Um, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. He says, this is how we know if we're in him. Jesus laid down his life for us. We should be laying down our lives for our brothers. If you see your brother in need and you don't do anything to respond, how can the love of God be in you? That you that's what it means to know God, is, is to care about the things that God cares about. And um, about a year and a half ago, as I was just kind of started wrestling with all of this, of just feeling like, Lord, there is a big disconnect in our life. There's a difference in my priority list and your priority list. And I started um, spending more time in Scripture on some of these verses. And I'm just going to read you just a handful of them, not by any means exhaustive. but in Psalms 82, 3-4, it says, Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. Proverbs 14:31, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 19:17, If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord, and He will repay you. Proverbs 24, 11-12, Rescue those who are unjustly sentenced to die. Save them as they stagger to their death. Don't excuse yourself by saying, Look, we didn't know. No, for God understands all hearts and he sees you. He who guards your soul knows you well and knows you new. And he will repay all people as their actions deserve. Proverbs 29, 7. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. It doesn't say those who are gifted with a special heart for the poor. It just says the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. When The king's mother is speaking to him about how to be a king she says speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves ensure justice for those being crushed speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice and a few verses later in verse 20 when she's talking about the kind of wife that he needs to find she says she extends a helping hand to the poor and opens her arms to the needy God says in Isaiah 117 learn to do right seek justice encourage the oppressed defend the cause of the fatherless plead the case of the widow when the church was starting in Acts in Acts four, it says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Um, There was a Roman officer in Acts ten, Cornelius, um, a Gentile who uh, was a God-fearing man, and God honored him and sent Peter to him, and an angel tells Cornelius that Peter's coming, and he says, It's because your prayers and your gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. And he comes and explains to Cornelius the gospel. Ephesians 4.28, which I think is a really amazing verse, says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Not so that he won't be a thief and won't have this bad record, but so that he has something to give to those who have need. Galatians 2, 9 and 10, Paul's talking to the Galatians about um, when James and Peter and John realized that Paul had this special grace um, and this ministry that God had given him to the Gentiles. He says, they agreed that I should go to the Gentiles and they did to the Jews. They only asked him one thing. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And Matthew 25, which is probably familiar to a lot of us, is the sheep and the goats. When Jesus says, at the end of everything, the Son of Man will come with all of his angels in his glory, and I will divide the groups of people into two groups. Very simple. Two groups. And one, I will say, welcome into the righteous life that is yours, because you fed me when I was hungry, you gave me water when I was thirsty, you visited me when I was in prison, you cared for me when I was sick, and they'll say, when did we do those things? And he'll say, when you did it for the least of my brothers, you did it for me, and vice versa. And that, to me, that is a dangerous scenario. That is a dangerous scenario to think that there is an accounting for does our life match what we say? And if, it, if, if what we say is true, then our life, there is an expectation of what our life should look like. And um, I, don't, I don't know if, if that strikes y'all as, as sobering. But I, just, I have wrestled with that for the last couple of years of am I preparing my kids for that? Um there's an interesting, I think, relationship between what we think of as the danger in this world, the corruption in this world, and serving those in need. Um, James 1.27 uh, is where, where James says, Pure religion in the sight of God is this. It's two things he lists. One thing you should do and one thing you shouldn't do. He says, number one, it's to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And number two, to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And um, I think we we look at that second one and it resonates with us. We definitely want to keep ourselves from being polluted by this world. And we definitely want to keep our kids from being polluted by this world. Um, and we will put up all kinds of shields. And rightly so, in in a lot of ways, so that they don't get exposed to that that danger. Um, I don't know if we always look at the other side of that coin and say this is important for our kids too. Um, you see the relationship again in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel uh, sixteen verses forty nine to fifty. You know, it talks about Sodom, and for most people, if you said what was the problem of Sodom? It would be a pretty quick answer of it was immorality, homosexuality. If you go back to the, you know, to the time when God destroyed it with fire, you know, and He sent the angels to warn Lot and his family, and um, you know the lawless men of that city were coming out um, with some pretty outrageous ideas um, in terms of. Uh, morality, and so we we see that, and we are disgusted by it, rightly so, and we are um, we don't want our kids to have any part of that. But Ezekiel 16:49 says, "Sodom sinned. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy." In the New Living, it says, "Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door." Um, But conversely, conversely, I think, if you look at Isaiah 58, God gives these great promises and these great um, words of blessing to... Here's what happens, though, when you do live this life of serving those in need. He says starting in verse verse 5 he says is this the kind of fast I have chosen only a day for a man to humble himself is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying on sackcloth and ashes is this what you call a fast a day acceptable to the Lord this is the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke it's to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked clothe him and don't turn away from your own flesh and blood Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, I love this part. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. I love that. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, your light will rise in the darkness. God will will say, here I am. And your righteousness will go before you. And all these great, beautiful um, words that he has for people who... Say my heart is going to be broken for the things that break God's heart. That was Bob Pierce's prayer, who started World Vision back in the 40, late 40s, early 1950s. He said, "Let my heart be broken for the things for the things that break God's heart." And um, that's how I want us to pray for our kids. You know, D. A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar at um, Trinity Seminary, um, he said. I look at my children and I wish for them enough opposition to make them strong, enough insults to make them choose, and enough hard decisions to see that following Jesus brings with it a cost. A cost eminently worth it, but still a cost. So um, I feel like you might... Want to claw my eyes out and say, "Do you know how tired I am? I have a baby at home, and what are you saying? Like, do you know how hard it is right now, and how much time I don't have?" And um, you know, and I think it, it is a valid question to say, "What does that mean for this season of life?" Um, you know, I'm I'm in it. I feel like I'm coming out of it just a little bit. You know, our kids are six, four, and three. Um, And when that youngest one gets up to three and is potty trained and able to communicate in mostly legible, you know, sentences, then, like, your whole world does change a little bit. Um, So what I'm not saying is um, you need to be putting one or two or three more things on your plate. Um, I didn't bring, like, a list of watermark serving opportunities so you could look through and be like, okay, what do I need to be doing? Because I'm not saying load up your plate more. Um, But I think the danger is we, we can look at this season of life and say it's crazy. And it is crazy with little ones. And we think it'll be easier a couple years down the road. But a couple years down the road, everybody's getting into school and you've got all kinds of different teachers and classroom activities that you're a part of in PTA and getting used to the rhythm of that and You know, they get a little bit older and then homework's taking more time and their friendships are getting a little bit deeper and they want to spend more time there and sports practices are taking more time and then they're kind of starting to get into junior high and all of the physiological and emotional transitions that are happening then just take everything out of you. And then they get into high school and it's, you know, you're consumed with getting your grades up for college admissions and driving and dating and bigger issues than you've ever faced. And then they're out of house and you really have time to start serving. It's just it has no impact on your kids then. You know, there will always be something that makes it not convenient, It will never be that we just have all this free time that we don't know what to do with, so we'll just go invest it there. That will never be the case. So um, am I saying that you should be out like 40 hours a week working at the DPRC? Probably not, you know. Um, But I think all I'm saying, all I'm encouraging is let's, let's pray not just you know, for our kids to have a good teacher at school and not just for them to be able to make friends without too big of a hiccup. And, and for those, we should be praying for our kids. David prayed all through the Psalms, protect me, protect me, protect me from physical things. We should be praying that for our kids. But um, I would love it if we would wake up every day and, and pray, how do we lose our lives today for the sake of the gospel? How do I show my child that that's what that's where life is? Because that's where life is. Um, I wrote down, um, you know, I made a list of things. Um, you know, I started out by saying, "What are the dangers um, out there?" And some of them are really easy to see. These were some of the dangers that I wrote down, and I encourage you to just kind of think through as you spend time in God's Word and with Him. Think through what are the things you want to protect your kids from, and what does it look like to do that? I said, I want to protect my kids from the lie that as long as they live morally and responsibly with some acknowledgement of Jesus, life can still be all about them. I want to protect my kids from the power of possessions. I want to protect my kids from the laziness that keeps seemingly well-intentioned believers from making any real difference for the cause of Christ. I want to protect my kids from the notion that being academically smart, athletically strong, or relationally respected is their ticket to any kind of meaningful success. I want to protect my kids from the myth that being a Christian is anything less than denying themselves, taking up their cross and following Christ. Because the church needs parents who will pray this and live this. The world needs parents who will pray this and live this. And we have this opportunity they're around us all the time. Um at this age, and it's such a formative age, and they're just sponges. They're soaking up everything. What a great time to show them this is what our life is about. It's not all about us and what we like, what we want, what we do, what makes sense to us. Um, you know, Paul and I spent a lot of time last year Went through a couple of books together just so we could kind of read the same things, be on the same page, talk over it. You know, just praying through that, just saying, God, what is not on the table for us? We, we feel like everything's always been on the table, but, you know, what needs to be on the table that is not really on the table? And, um, and just see, how, would, how might Christ reorder our lives? Um, it's been, we, I love being where we are right now. I never would, I never would have said, we felt like God was stirring us to move. We felt like this is not our life anymore. It just doesn't, it makes sense to the world good value for good space in good neighborhood and good schools all of that it made sense to the world but i don't want my life to to make sense to the world you know um so what are we missing what is you know i wouldn't have said i bet we need to move to a really impoverished area where there's a lot of drugs and a lot of prostitution and schools that are completely in crisis i wouldn't have said i bet that's what yeah, you know, we just kind of assumed, well, let's just move closer in where we've got friends and we'll downsize and it just sounded good. And, um, and we just kind of realized, no, we're kind of just operating on our own assumptions on our own agendas on our own thoughts. And there are things that are not on the table that we thought were. And so, um, so that's my encouragement to you today is, um, yes, let's be careful and cautious in the way that we view um, and what we expose our children to in terms of who we trust to care for them, um, knowing that there are dangers in the world that, um, that are real and that will have real effects on our kids. And let's do what we can to be smart about the situations we put them in. Let's pray for the Lord to protect them. Um, David's a great model for that. But, um, but let's spend the time looking at our own families and our own lives and say, where are we living with the things of God on our mind daily, practically, tangibly, and where are we really just kind of living for earthly things? Um, and see what God will do. In our families, and through our families, because of that. Um, okay, good. I finished. Um, I wanted to finish with enough time to like have, be able to dialogue about it a little bit, or questions, or we can go back to some of the things at the beginning. If you were like, this was not why I was here, I wanted you to tell me how to deal with this stranger down the street, um, to be able to come back a little bit um, and have whatever conversation needed to take place. Um, and we do we have we have time for that, right? Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Oh, yeah, we have plenty of time. Um, just if you raise your hand, I, we, we're recording this, so it makes better sense to people listening if we hear the question and answer. So I'm going to run to you with the microphone if you've got questions. So just curious, you kind of addressed this, but short of picking up and moving to West Dallas, which probably most of us aren't going to accomplish in our lifetime, What are, can you think of any tangible examples to – I mean, I know it looks different for everybody. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. I think it it does look. I wrestled with the Lord a lot over. Okay, what do I, um, what do I put before them? You know, like I thought about about getting the watermark. Um, you know, there's a whole big list of areas where Watermark is investing in terms of um, communities that are in need. Um through Brother Bill's Helping Hand in West Dallas, through Union Gospel Mission, through outreach areas to Vickery Park, to international things. Um, and I just I just didn't do it. I just kind of felt like I really think the place to start is not looking through, okay, what are some options? I really think the place to start is just, Lord, everything's on the table Careers on the table, house is on the table, school is on the table, everything is on the table. What would you like us to do? And um, because I don't want to, I don't because I don't know what it would be would be for you. I don't. Um, you know, people will sometimes be like, um, "That's so great that you have a heart for urban ministry." I'm like, I've never had a heart for urban ministry, <laughs> never. Like, I've never read a book on it. I've never gone to seminars on it. I went to my first like thing with Francis Chan like last week on caring for the urban poor. That was the first like even real talk I've had on that. Like, it wasn't that I. It wasn't that you know this is something where. I could really start feeling getting involved. It was just, Lord, our life is not matching what I see, in here. There's a big gap between the way I spend a lot of my day and I think the biblical expectation of how I would spend my day. How do we fix that? And for, I mean, I was I prayed that for, um, for several. I was praying that for several weeks. Just everything's on the table. What should we do? Give us a heart for for what you have a heart for and not just our own, you know, ideas. I didn't want to just go do service projects and come back And this, you know. I wanted him to just lead us. And I think it was like three or four weeks um, later we were here that Sunday morning when Watermark announced they were going to partner with Sequoia and West Dallas um, to do the mentoring and all of that. And I was, my heart was just like, that is an answer to our prayer. You know, because I had been so con- so concerned about, I want to move to an area that has good schools for my kids. Because, I mean, we're realistically looking at three kids that we can't afford to send all to private schools. So it just made sense to us that we're going to move to a, a neighborhood that has exemplary schools. You know, we wanted a good neighborhood where we'd be safe, because that's how you protect your kids, you know, is by living in a, a good area. And so I had those were just assumptions I had made that surely... God would want us to be in a good home and a good neighborhood and good schools and good, 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 good. You know, but um, but as I prayed, okay, no, what if, what if, Lord, would you give us a school that we could be a part of transforming it? And would you give us a community that we could be a part of impacting it for Christ? Um, you know, that was just... Um, and then when the opportunity with Watermark came, it was like, both Paul and me, we were like, that's... The answer to our prayer, um, but I couldn't have just gone. I couldn't. Someone couldn't have just said to me, "You should go down and serve in West Dallas." I would have been like, "You know what? I don't know anything about, you know, the hood. I'm not a. I'm like the least, you know, multicultural person there is. I'm like I'm so just white, you know, like I am. And so I, I didn't. I just would not have. I think it has to start further back than that and let God show you. There are. There are a thousand great ways you can get involved. But it, but it's even just sometimes the day-to-day, how you approach day-to-day opportunities even. You know, one of the, the uh, and some of you all know this because you read my blog, but one of the, the great um, kind of... I don't know if you want to call it like a side note of being where we are, but something that has been really neat has just been running into homeless people more. Um, and, you know, they're on the corners all the time. And so it's been so great. We just make sure we always have peanut butter crackers or bananas or I'll throw some vitamin waters in the car before we leave to go take the boys to school. And it's just stopping, you know, at the light and saying, hey, what's your name? And, you know, telling them, you know what, you're precious to Jesus, and He cares about you, and we care about you, and I know your life is rough, and I don't know what's going on, but I just want to give you this, and, you know, we'll give them little cards to Union Gospel Mission, say there's a place down the road that's great if you want to, you know, and it's and it's just even little things like that where... um where now my kids, if we pass somebody on the side of the road, you know, that's just like at the bus stop or something, they're like, Mom, let's give him some food. <laughs> and I'm like, well, he's just waiting for the bus. I don't, I don't, he's not homeless, you know. Um, but, you know, just even, I think, I think there are even just little things we can do in the day that, that speak to our life isn't about getting from this place to that place. Our life is about serving who we meet along the way. And so, and, you know, that's the beautiful thing about Jesus is just he was interrupted Nonstop. He was going here, but people came, and his his day stopped, and the trajectory changed. And it was, I'm going to meet your need right here. And um, so, anyway, I I'm hesitant to give a formula or.